you, David, and thank you all for coming. Um, I should just mention that the, what I intend to put up on the website before next lecture uh, next week, which is the fourth lecture on Plotinus and late Platonism, um, are, are photocopies of the, the principal treatises. They're not very many and they're not very long of Plotinus, from which I'll be speaking mostly. I'm not going to be making a lot of references any more than I've done in the previous lectures to particular texts, and I'm not going to be discussing particular texts, although in the last um, seminar I hope to do that. But in case I realize that Plotinus is not um, as familiar to f philosophers uh, in philosophy faculties around the world uh, as the other figures who I've been dealing with, and so this might be uh, useful for you to have a look at, uh, if you haven't read Plotinus before, to get some orientation for what I'll be saying in the lecture next time. So now to the Stoics. In two ways, our task is significantly different in approaching Stoic philosophy and Stoicism as a way of life from our task in discussing Socrates and Aristotle in the previous two lectures. First, we're dealing now not with a single philosopher's views, and works, but with a whole tradition extending from the late 4th and the 3rd century BCE to some indeterminate point in the 2nd century CE or even somewhat later in the 3rd. The Stoic school, an official place for lectures and other instruction in philosophy, was established at Athens apparently in the last decade of the 4th century BCE, the century when both Plato and Aristotle lived, by a man named Zeno from Kittium, modern-day Larnaca in Cyprus. Zeno had successors in a continuous line for many centuries as head of that school. Philosophically, the most important of them, of these successors, was Chrysippus of Soli, a town in the eastern reaches of Asia Minor, in the second half of the third century. The teaching of Stoicism, a robustly this-worldly philosophy, both at the painted Stoa in Athens, its home site, and in many other Stoic schools, spread across the Greek-speaking eastern Mediterranean, uh, uh, petered out by early in the third century CE, effectively overwhelmed by the advance of spiritualist metaphysics and spiritualist ethical aspirations under the banner of a revised Platonism. I'll discuss Platonist metaphysics and ethics, the spiritual movement in the next, the spiritualist conception of, uh, of metaphysics and ethics in the next lecture. You can see on handout one some, some uh, the collect the information which I've just given you about the historical uh, dates and so on. So that's the first way we're dealing, uh, we, we, we're doing something different this time from the last two. Second, in interpreting and evaluating the Stoic theories, we have to proceed not from the original Stoic's writings, which established the principal doctrines of the school, preserved by all Stoic teachers. Rather, we have to proceed from other non-Stoic writers, mostly hostile quotations and reports. That means that we must attempt our own interpretations and explications of their views without much direct knowledge of the philosophical arguments and analyses that led them to the doctrines. In my lecture today, I concentrate primarily on what scholars call the, quote, old Stoics of the end of the fourth and the third to early second centuries BCE, especially Chrysippus, who was the greatest and most systematic of all Stoic philosophers. I'll also take into account, but mostly silently, in fact, entirely silently, um, uh, the Stoics of the Roman period, writing either in Latin or Greek, who carried the old Stoic system into the life of the imperial elite in the early centuries of the new millennium.
Nero's tutor and advisor Seneca, mid-first century CE, the freed slave and Stoic teacher Epictetus, late first and early second centuries, and the emperor Marcus Aurelius, 121 to 180. As with Socrates and Aristotle in earlier lectures, in offering my account of Stoic metaphysics and ethical theory and the Stoic way of life, I attempt to go behind the bare set of doctrines that that our sources present us with. Through engaging philosophically with our evidence concerning their views, I try to work out an account of the supporting reasons or philosophical analyses that it seems most likely that they offered in justification and defense of them in their own lectures and writings, which are now lost forever to us. Stoic ethics rests upon an elaborately articulated conception of happiness, eudaimonia, as the single constant goal or end for a well-lived life. In their focus on happiness as the single goal of a good life, the Stoics carry forward the tradition of of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And in their theory that this single constant goal is a single activity, namely the active exercise of the human virtues in all that you do, they follow Aristotle, or at least they are in striking agreement with him. But as we will see, they fill out this common structure for happy human life and action in remarkably new ways. Their famous insistence at the center of their moral theory on moral duties and on doing one's duty strictly for duty's sake as what virtuous action consists in rests on this new foundation. Paradoxical as the idea might seem at first sight of duty strictly done but also done for the sake of happiness. Furthermore, ethical theory for the Stoics becomes the central component of a rigorously constructed, fully integrated philosophical account, self-consciously fully integrated philosophical account of the whole of reality, in which they postulate a single creator God inherent in the world of nature as the causal origin, not only of the progress of all the world's events over time, but also the source of all our own moral duties. It is because this God imposes upon us the requirement to act virtuously that virtuous activity becomes synonymous with duty for them. This is a momentous innovation in the Greek tradition and one, obviously, with immense historical repercussions. The all-inclusiveness and vast coherence of the Stoic's philosophical system with ethical theory at its center is in fact an important source of Stoicisms and the Stoic way of life, life's appeal, both in antiquity and even today. In order to understand properly the Stoic way of life and its philosophical bases, we're going to have to learn, have to learn a good deal about their metaphysical and physical theory, into which, as I've said, their ethical theory is set as the centerpiece of their whole philosophical system. And a good part of my lecture today, not all of it, but a good part of it is going to be devoted to this metaphysical and physical background. The Stoics echoed Aristotle in declaring being happy, in Greek eudaimonein, a verb, to be the end, telos, or highest good for which all actions are to be done. It is itself an action, but one not done for the sake of anything else besides itself. And again, like Aristotle and Socrates, they specified this action as, quote, living in accordance with the virtues. Thus, for them, happiness is a specific single activity or type of activity. The activity in which virtues that one possesses are expressed in all, 
each and every one of the different voluntary actions one performs in the course of living the best adult life. It's by governing one's life and all the actions that make it up through possessing and applying the outlook on life provided by the virtues that, according to the Stoics, one achieves one's own highest good and lives happily. But the Stoics added two further characterizations of this activity of the virtues. You can see these summarized on on hand deck number two. It is the same thing as living in agreement and secondly as living in accordance with nature. These are new ideas, not present in Aristotle's account. When we attend closely to them, we can see that the starting point the Stoics share with Aristotle, namely that living happily is the end for human beings and our highest good, and that this is the same thing as possessing and applying the virtues in all that one does, that that rests upon significantly different philosophical foundations. For now, at the beginning of the lecture, I want simply to make clear how we should understand these claims of the Stoics about living in accordance with nature and living in agreement. In the second half of the lecture, I'll try to explain why we should accept them as true according to Stoic theory. So first I'll try to tell you, help to explain what these ideas mean, and then later I'll come back and tell you uh, things in Stoic analysis uh, which uh, they think, and which rather plausibly does, uh, give at least some semblance of persuasion to these claims. The somewhat strange phrase, living in agreement, seems meant to indicate that fully virtuous living, or equivalently happy living, It involves, crucially, agreement with oneself. Those who live that way, in agreement, have none of the divided thoughts and feelings about how one is living or about what one is doing at any moment that at least intermittently characterize most, if not all, people who are vicious to whatever degree, however slight or large. But in agreement meant more than that to the Stoics. The adverb so translated, homologumenos in Greek, has the word reason, logos, as its root. It means literally, quote, having reasoned thoughts that are the same or in common, end quote. This commonness or sameness is the force of the prefix homo. But it is not just with oneself that for the Stoics one thinks the same thoughts if one is virtuous. As Chrysippus made clear, living in agreement meant that in living and acting, one thinks in some way some of the same thoughts as the world itself does that is, the world of nature, under the governance of the world mind, or the god Zeus, who is indeed for them nature itself, according to one usage of the term nature. I'll explain that as I proceed. One thinks, if one's living in agreement, in some way the same thoughts about one's life, about its circumstances, its successes and failures, about how one is leading it and what one is doing at any moment in so leading it, that Zeus himself thinks about it, both in terms of one's general orientation and with respect to the particular actions that one does at any moment. So, living in agreement means living in one's own thoughts, the ones that direct one's life and actions, in agreement with the thoughts of Zeus, the world mind, as he or it controls and rules over all that happens in the world at large. It means having the thoughts with which one directs one's own life be, in some way, in full agreement with Zeus's thoughts, as those direct the whole world's life. 
When the Stoics add as a second characterization of what living virtuously comes to, that living in agreement, i.e. with Zeus or nature, is also living, quote, in accordance with nature, it is very important to see that they are not repeating themselves. In the second phrase, the nature referred to is not the world mind itself in causing by its thoughts and ruling over what happens in the course of nature. In accordance with nature means in accordance with the natural outcomes themselves of all the various natural processes, as well as events resulting in part from human actions, as we can observe those outcomes occurring over time together with the inferences we can draw from them about the thoughts of Zeus or nature as to the proper behaviors of the living things, including human beings that are involved in and affected by them. Now, that's a complicated sentence, I know. I'm going to return later to try to explicate it. But for now, informally, we could think of living in accordance with nature as living on the basis of certain normative principles, deriving from our observations of how nature itself operates in directing the lives of animals and plants, which are things without reason of their own to direct how they grow and develop and live, as well as what happens in human self-directed life under ordinary conditions. That's the basis of the ethical naturalism to which Stoics commit themselves so strongly. It's the basis of the idea that you get norms for living from observing how nature works. On this conception of human beings, the Stoic conception of human beings, we are the sole non-divine possessors of a power of reason with which we make our own choices and direct our own actions. With our own individual minds, we stand in relation to a divine mind actually and actively present within the world of nature, causing and producing by its own thoughts the events that the world contains. Here we meet with the conception of divinity and of our relationship to it that departs markedly from the conception we find in Aristotle. For Aristotle, the natural world and its principles of operation, which are the objects of study in natural philosophy, constitute a self-standing realm. This realm consists to a great extent of teleological processes. Belonging, however, to a natural and inherent, an inherent teleology not involving the presence of a mind to activate it, whether from within or from outside. This Aristotelian world of nature is a self-sustaining, eternal realm of plants, animals, seas, rivers, lakes, land masses, mountains, all made of material stuffs, rock, gases, metals, other solids and other fluids than the ones already mentioned, reducible ultimately to four simple bodies, as he calls them, each uniform and not further reducible, earth, air, fire, and water. Each of these different components operates on its own and combines with others according to principles distinctive of and inherent in it that do not derive in any way or include any thinking, a part I mean from the thinking that goes on in the human beings who are only one very special part of the natural world so made up. For Aristotle, the divine mind stands outside this system altogether. Even though this system and everything else that has any being at all depends upon the divine mind's thinking for its very existence. The divine mind does not create the natural world. That world is eternal. 
and it does not direct any natural processes by teleological thinking of its own. It affects things only through activities of thought that are most closely paralleled by our own theoretical, that is non-practical, non-teleological thinking at its highest and most metaphysical. Aristotle's cosmic God notoriously thinks itself with no other direct concerns than for this thinking, i.e. for itself. The Aristotelian God's effects on the natures of things and on natural processes derive somehow from the beauty and excellence of this thought as a model for the eternal self-maintaining teleological processes at work in the natural world. For Aristotle, we, as reasoners ourselves, are related to the thinking of the divine mind only through the divine mind's being the ultimate and highest object for us to grasp and understand in our own theoretical thinking. As such, it's the object at which the activities constituting our highest end are directed. It is true that in understanding the divine mind's thought, we are also engaging, so far as the human mind can, in an activity of thinking that is most like the very best thing there is, period, namely divine mind's activity of thought. That's the basis for Aristotle's view, which you saw last time, that this human activity of understanding is our highest good. On Aristotle's theory, we can reasonably be said to assimilate ourselves to God in the exercise of our highest virtues, namely those of the theoretical intellect. But the thinking involved in our practical virtues operates quite apart from any such assimilation. The virtue of practical wisdom is knowledge of the human good, not of God, God's activity, as a good beyond us. Of course, if we are practically wise, we must always bear in mind that the highest human virtues, which bring us in close relation to this good beyond us, are intellectual, not practical ones. But practical wisdom does not include actual knowledge, so to speak hands-on knowledge, of that good. It only includes knowledge of its existence and of its high value. The principles of practical wisdom are derived from reflection on human beings as members of the self-standing realm of nature, mutually dependent and mutually cooperative, if we are possessed of the human practical virtues, in seeking the best life, shared in common with like-minded other human beings that human nature makes possible for us. The Stoic understanding of the world of nature is very different. As a result, so is their understanding of our relation even in our practical virtues, to speak again in Aristotelian terms, to the divine mind and to divine thoughts about how we are to live. It would take us much more than a single lecture to unravel sufficiently all the consequences for Stoic ethical theory of this momentous shift away from the Aristotelian view of nature as a freestanding realm to one in which all that happens in the world happens in a quite direct sense through the operation within it of the teleological thinking of an inherent divine mind. This different understanding seems to be derived from views developed in certain di dialogues of Plato, in particular the Timaeus, views that Aristotle had considered and rejected. On the Platonic Stoic view, it is divine teleological planning and activity that both create and then continuously govern the natural world. The Platonic and Stoic universe consists of a world animal, possessing a world soul with which to think about and direct all its own life. That is, all the main processes and events in the natural history of the world. 
This world animal contains, as functioning parts, all the other animals, each with a material body and a soul of its own. But it consists in part also, most importantly, of a group of human animals possessing rational souls of their own, minds with which they direct the aspects of their lives that consist in their own voluntary actions and all their reasoned thoughts, even, of course, their reasoned thoughts that are misreasoned and bad, wrong thoughts. You can see this summarized in handout three and then continuing in in four through six below. Thus, like Plato in the Timaeus, the Stoics conceived the physical world, which for them, unlike for Plato, was all the world there is as a single animal, with a life of its own and a soul to cause all its movements. This soul is the locus in Stoic theory of the divine reason, or Zeus, spread everywhere through it and thereby through the rest of the world too, since the world soul is spread everywhere through the world. Reason or Zeus is thus in contact with all the materials making up the world. With this world soul and with all the compound and complex material bodies that this soul passes through. It is in contact with each and every material body in all its parts, however small. Indeed, at what we would call infinitesimal levels. By that contact and only by it, the divine mind is able to cause all the states and conditions of matter itself and of all the different kinds of material things as well as all the changes over time that constitute the world and its history over the whole of time. Strange as this conception of the world as an animal with a soul of its own may seem to us now, there are powerful arguments in its favor and the Stoics, following Plato's lead in the Timaeus, devoted considerable efforts to explaining and justifying it. It's also true that the Aristotelian view was in later antiquity uh, not accepted by anybody. I mean, that might be the view which we would be more attracted to. doesn't matter. History tells us that the, 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 this other strange view was the one that appealed to the, uh, to the, the, the later philosophers in Greece. Now, so far as ethics and our ways of life are concerned, here is the main question that arises on the Stoics' overall view of nature and our place in it as rational animals. What does the fact of our unique rationality in relation to God's more com- complete and powerful mind mean for a correct understanding of human nature and of the human virtues, that is, for the perfection of our own reason? As we have seen for the Stoics, human happiness consists in living virtuously and therefore in living in agreement both with ourselves in our undivided thoughts about ourselves, our actions, and our life, and with Zeus's or nature's own thoughts insofar as those concern our individual actions and our overall way of life. Here we meet with a major clash and disagreement between the Stoics and Aristotle, not just differences, even radical ones as before. For Aristotle, the practical virtues combine two distinct, though intimately and essentially related, conditions of the soul. On the one hand, there is practical wisdom, a virtue of the mind, and on the other, there are the varied moral virtues or virtues of character consisting in a mean disposition of our non-rational feelings of appetite and spirit. But as part of their adherence to the Socratic heritage from which Zeno had started out on his philosophical journey, the Stoics rejected the psychological division of the soul expounded by Plato in the Republic and Timaeus and systematized by Aristotle in his ethical treatises. 
According to the Platonic Aristotelian theory of human psychology, there are in us, as we've seen, three separate and interactive powers of reason, spirit, and appetitive desire. Virtue, therefore, involves three separate but unified conditions, one for each of these three parts or aspects of the human soul. For the Stoics, and as they thought for Socrates, human virtue is a much simpler affair. It is a condition exclusively of our minds, that is, of our practical thoughts about action and about life. That's because, on the Stoic analysis, the only sources of motivation, that is, of actual psychic impulses, as the Stoics call them, toward moving any parts of the body voluntarily in actions of any kind. Uh, so on their view, the only sources of motivation are found in the mind. That is, in our thoughts about what to do or avoid doing, or what is worth acting to achieve or obtain and use, or worth avoiding if we can. There are no separate ap appetites or spirited desires, as on the Platonic Aristotelian moral psychology. Appetites and spirited desires become, for the Stoics, themselves aspects or products of the single embodied reasoning power that constitutes all by itself the human soul, insofar as the soul of the human being is the source of our voluntary actions. Now, this Stoic moral psychology and psychology of human action go not only against the analyses of Plato and Aristotle, they also clash with what we now regard as simple common sense. We regard it that way as simple common sense, of course, precisely because in the later history of thought, the Platonic Aristotelian separation of thought from feeling or emotion as occurring in, so to speak, separate parts of the soul came to be accepted without serious question. The Stoic theory does, in fact, however, as it seems to me, have considerable merits. And when properly understood, which I fear it hardly ever is, it may, in fact, seem a better, overall more satisfactory account of human action than our current common sense one. Uh, or than Plato's and Aristotle's, which is the origin of it. I won't have time to go into that now, but I'll come back to this topic uh, towards the end of the lecture. In any event, on the basis of their moral psychology, the Stoics notoriously reject, as in every case bad states of mind, all feelings of emotion, that is, all pathé in Greek, all feelings of anger or grief or pity or fear, but also feelings of pleasure when we achieve something we have worked hard for or when things just go our way in some respect. All these feelings are bad because, they claim, they inevitably involve and, essentially, and indeed essentially consist in thinking about external events in our lives in ways that are not and cannot be in any sort of true agreement with nature or with Zeus's thoughts about those same events. I'll explain that too as we go on. To understand why they make this claim, we need to ask, what are the implications for a proper understanding of the human virtues of our relationship as the only other rational beings to God or nature, the divine mind inherent everywhere in our world? If living virtuously means, as the Stoics think it does, living in agreement both with ourselves and with the universal mind that governs nature, what does living in agreement with that mind involve for us? I said earlier that this mind is spread everywhere through the world of nature, the material world, down to its smallest parts. 
and causes all its movements with the sole exception, to which I'll come shortly, of movements in our bodies caused by or consisting in our own individual minds' decisions about what to do. This mind is contained in the world soul. This world mind is contained in the world soul, which for the Stoics is not a spiritual substance, as it is for Platonists, but a material one. The world soul serves as the first physical and material instrument used by the world mind, God or nature, in causing all the world's movements, thus giving rise to the world animal's outer life, that is, the movements and other changes the material world undergoes. In order to understand the implications of this conception for the Stoic theory of the virtues, we need to touch briefly on some fundamentals of Stoic metaphysics and physical theory. And so I'll be doing that for the next four or five minutes. For Stoics, mind, both this divine mind and our individual ones, is also, like the world soul and our individual souls, not a spiritual substance, at least not if that means some otherworldly kind of entity deriving from or existing in some realm beyond space and time, as it is for the Platonists. But on Stoic principles, mind is also not a material body. In this mind differs from soul, that which mind is first spread through and uses as its instrument. Mind for the Stoics is one of two paired basic principles of all of reality. Mind is paired with matter as the second of the two, as they say, quote, first principles, archai, of all that has being. Everything that has being is composed of mind and matter. Matter being entirely passive, mind entirely active. All the qualities of matter anywhere are imposed by the actions on it of the world mind in thinking its thoughts as regards that particular matter and how it is to be physically constituted. But in order to be able to have any such effects, the Stoics are convinced, mind must be a corporeal or bodily thing, even if to our ears this sounds not only weird but almost self-contradictory. Platonists don't blanch at the idea of a spiritual substance, God or mind or soul in general, being able to cause movements in matter, even perhaps to create it, while existing, in fact exclusively, in some realm beyond space and time. But the Stoics find that inconceivable. And if inconceivable, then also impossible. There cannot be any miracles of unintelligible action of spirits on bodies. Or there would be arbitrariness and, in fact, chaos at the, best, at the basis of things, which it certainly seems manifest is not the case. Hence, the Stoics develop a concept of body that includes but is not limited to bodies that are made of matter, as are all the bodies we can see and be otherwise affected by. Minds, both the world mind and our individual ones, are also bodies, precisely because of their active powers to cause movements in material things. But minds are not material bodies, that is, they're not bodies made up ultimately, as all material things are, of earth, air, fire, and water, the Greeks' physical elements. Minds are bodies that possess only the power to act upon bodies with which they are in contact. They have no material characteristics uh, at all, only this bodily one of, con of contacting and acting on other things. Next, we need to consider one point that the Stoics, along with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle as well, take as a fundamental fact about reason itself, even in human beings. 
This is that inherent in reason is not just an interest in truth, but an attachment to and motivation in its activities by pursuit of the good. The Stoics take this to imply that the world reason or Zeus, both in all its formative activities in giving their physical properties to the various kinds of stuff and to the various kinds of material objects the world contains, and in causing the subsequent movements, um, now I've lost track of this sense. They implied that the, that, that the world reason or Zeus in doing all of that is aiming at producing a maximally good product. The world mind's thought is fundamentally teleological in all its operations. Hence, the world's structures and contents will take shape and interact over the whole history of the world in ways that will constitute an external life history of the world animal, that is, all the movements and other changes that take place anywhere in the physical world taken all together, that consists in a series of events that is maximally complex but well-ordered, integrated, and efficient in sustaining the world organism as a well-functioning single system over time. A human mind, even assuming that by its nature it pursues the good, can mistake what actually is good and can aim at results that are bad. But the world mind has no sources, either internal or external, of any such corruption or error. Hence, it does aim, as I just said, at a maximally good product consisting in this maximally complex, well-ordered, and integrated external life history of the world. But not only that, whereas, of course, even a human mind that makes no mistake and aims only to produce what is truly good can be frustrated in its efforts. Uh, the world mind, however, faces no external obstacles at all to achieving its purposes. Matter, being purely passive, can be made by it to take on any qualities it thinks best to impose. Hence, the actual history of the world, including all the stuffs and, and objects it contains, with their particular natures and properties, and their actions and interactions over the whole of time, does actually constitute that maximal good that I've said the world mind, by its very essence as the mind that it is, is aiming at producing. Our question then concerns what all this means for us with our individual minds. If we consider our relation to this world animal as individual minds of the same substance of it, as itself, with the same basic power of activity that it possesses in shaping and causing movements in matter, though with a greatly more limited scope, what should we think about our own place in this world? What conditions in our own minds, what principles for using our capacities of thought and action will provide for us virtuous living? That is, living in agreement with nature and with ourselves individually, and so a happy life. As we've seen, there are good reasons to suppose that the world mind, in causing the world to be the way it is, and in causing the events making up its history, is pursuing and achieving a maximally good result. But we ourselves contribute something to this history too through our decisions as to what to pursue and what to do in causing our own actions and shaping our own lives. We as minds have the power to move those parts of our own physical substance that we directly control, namely the parts of our souls which initiate all our actions and in which our plans for our lives and our conceptions of what is good for us and our decisions are lodged. Of course, a lot else has to happen favorably in order for us to carry out any particular decision. The world mind, not we individually, is responsible for the state of our bodies at any given time. 
Anyhow, it's much more responsible than we may be through our own earlier decisions, as well as for what goes on in the outer world in which we wish to act. But we, not the world animal, not the, sorry, not the world mind, are immediately responsible for our decisions and for the movements of our souls that initiate our actions. In possessing the power of reason, we have ideas about what is good and bad and what is worth doing or avoiding, and so on. And moreover, there are standards for deciding which are the right such ideas to have, standards which we can recognize if we think correctly, simply because those are standards belonging to reason and standards for the use of reason. It's up to us whether we do think correctly. Just because we are rational beings, we have the power to follow arguments and to discern the truth, at least where non-technical matters to do with human life are concerned. In fact, it is about those standards and their application to the way we should lead our lives that we're now inquiring. We make our decisions on the basis of how we individually think about what is good or bad and about how, as a result, in our given circumstances, we ought to and how we will act. To repeat, we, not the world mind, cause our decisions, and to that extent, our individual actions. The complete history of the world, then, is the joint result of what we decide and how we act, plus how the world mind determines the structure of and events in the outer world, over most of which, of course, we have no control whatsoever. The first thing that should strike us when we consider all this background metaphysical and physical theory is that, through our rationality, we as individual human beings have a remarkably high calling. We are partners of the world mind, who work with, within its amazingly complex uh, cosmic plan aimed at achieving the maximally good whole sequence of world events. Part of the amazing complexity and intricacy and beauty of that plan, when it is put into effect, is the creation of human beings as independent minds, deciding for themselves individually, on the basis of reasons they propose to themselves and take to be valid, how they will act. Therein, they make their own individual contributions to the achievement of this maximally good sequence. Our very nature, then, is to live and act as partners of Zeus in the carrying out of his plan. That is what we are here for. The amazing beauty and fantastic good order of the world and its history, playing out over time in accordance with this cosmic plan, is therefore something that concerns us directly, insofar as we are by nature partners of the world mind. Indeed, they think we are subordinate parts of that mind in carrying that plan out. Subordinate but independent parts. In that way, the world's good is our good too, just as much as it is God's or the world minds, the world minds. That is to say, our nature is such that we need to live in agreement with Zeus, or nature taken as a whole, in order to achieve our own good, as the natural kind of thing that we are. Which actions of ours then, and which ways of acting, will contribute as fully as we can as we can to this beautiful and well-ordered sequence? Each of us is concerned, of course, first of all, and primarily with our own needs and other concerns as the individual animals that we are, and with our own actions. It is our own needs and concerns that we first and foremost naturally seek. What, more specifically, are the concerns and interests that we should have on that basis as partners with Zeus and implementing our good uh, as part of his or its divine plan for the best maximally well-ordered history of the world? In what ways and 
with what thoughts and attitudes should we pursue our individual concerns and interests in seeking to contribute as fully as we can to the good of the whole world. I explained above the distinction that Stoic analysis draws between acting in agreement with nature in the sense of universal reason and acting in accordance with nature in the sense of the way natural events usually play themselves out. We need to combine both these aspects of virtuous action in working out an answer to my questions. In so doing, we will be able to see how, according to the Stoics, the world mind wishes for us to act and to live. That is, how it wishes us to act and to try to live. As I've mentioned, whether or not we succeed on any occasion in achieving the outer goals of the action we undertake, because the world mind wishes for us to act for those outer goals, depends upon what else the world mind wishes to achieve at the given time and place in its own vast overall plan for producing the maximally good and rationally coherent whole order of world history. Besides seeing how the world mind wishes us to act, and for what outer goals, we will also see the reasons the Stoics have for thinking that living that way will best achieve our own personal good. After all, as they argue, it is a world mind with those intentions that has created us, giving us the nature as rational beings, such that living that way is our own natural work. In order to know what interests and concerns of ours as adults would be in accordance with nature, we have a rich source of information to go on. We need only look to how nature itself normally conducts the lives of the plants and animals that are wholly governed by its own processes because they, unlike us, do not possess reason. This governance and these processes are, of course, expressions of the world reasons, wishes, and decisions informing the world's various and variegated animal and plant life and in causing, at least in these specific cases, their growth and their life activities stage by stage from birth right up to their deaths. By considering what goes on in the life of a normal plant or non-rational animal, we can discover what the world mind's intentions are for the contribution of these plants and animals themselves, individually and as kinds, and of the sequences of events making up their lives, to the beauty and good order of the total sequence of events that constitutes the external life of the whole world animal. Now, in fact, among the non-rational animals are included also human beings before they reach adolescence and before they've acquired the full use of their developing rational powers. The Stoics think observation shows us that that's a period during which human beings have desires and impulses for doing things in pursuit of their desires in just the way that other animals do. Their behavior derives from a basis of instincts given to them by nature at birth, that gets transformed as they gain experience, for the most part through gradual developments that are in the same sense purely natural. During this period, their behavior, changing over time, does not depend at any point on reasoned decisions of the children themselves, but only on pressures of the circumstances, given that initial endowment of instincts and those perceptual powers as affected by um, uh, outer things which act on their perceptual capacities. In the case of the other animals, that initial starting point develops into a steady, stable pattern of desires arising and subsiding over time and in relation to external perceptions, all caused by the world mind. This pattern gives rise to the set of life activities characteristic of a mature member of the given species. For humans, however, the processes of control of their actions 
and so lives by natural instincts and perceptual responses extends only so long as they are still growing up and until uh, and indeed only to something like the age of 14 at that point the age of reason the desires on which they act all come instead from their own reason's conclusions about how it is right to feel and to act as as I've already explained as they develop The young of adult human parents do, of course, also exhibit in their behaviors the influence of human rationally derived customs and their parents' or other adult humans' ideas about how they should behave. Some of their behavior will certainly betray feelings of attachment and aversion that do not derive simply from the natural endowment of instincts and perceptual powers, but are due to the ideas that adult humans with whom they interact hold about attachments and aversions one ought to hold or ought to feel. Relying on responses in the children that do derive from the natural endowment, adult humans have great influence on how the young that are in their care come to feel and how they come to form their desires. Those have to be taken into account and to a great extent discounted in assessing from observation of human infants and children what is in fact according to nature in their behavior. Nonetheless, for the Stoics, normative ideas about the natural life of adults are importantly to be derived from the study of the actual lives and instincts of young pre-rational human beings. Instincts and behavior caused by external nature itself and therefore directly by the world mind. Considering the lives of plants and other animals under conditions normal for members of their species, together with the behaviors of human infants and young children, as just sketched, we can derive important principles for how, as adults, we need to live, if we are to live according to nature. We need to eat and drink the right sorts of foods, and only in the right quantities, to maintain our physical constitutions in a naturally strong and healthy condition. We need to exercise our bodies and our mental capacities of perception in ways appropriate for keeping our natural powers sharp and strong through games and other pastimes of a sort suitable to that end, in which those powers get exercised in ways satisfying to us for their own sakes. Furthermore, we can see that animals of virtually all species give special recognition to members of the same species and normally and naturally congregate with and cooperate with their congeners in living some sort of shared life. Hence, we can infer. We also need to establish and maintain mutually cooperative and helping relations with at least some of our fellow humans, the ones we live in community with. Likewise, we have reason, at least unless we are in some way physically abnormal, to form sexual unions with members of the other sex for the purpose of generating successful human beings. Since in the human case, upbringing takes so long and it's so complicated, these unions have to be enduring and stable. We need to learn and pursue some mode of productive work in maintaining the ongoing life of our communities. In all these ways, we adopt a mode of life that allows us to contribute through our individual actions and the ensemble of actions so produced to the beauty and good order of the whole world animal and its life. If we are to be virtuous and to live in agreement with nature, we do that because we understand that this is how the world mind wishes and indeed intends us to live. 
using our own powers of reason to govern ourselves, as the Stoics say, quote, more perfectly than nature itself governs the lives of plants and non-rational animals, including small children, but following the same basic patterns and objectives that we see nature itself exhibiting, as I've just explained. Most adult human beings already find themselves with natural inclinations in favor of many of these actions of a, quote, natural life. People, I suppose, feel naturally inclined toward marriage and childbearing and childrearing, or, of course, at least toward eating and drinking many foods that are healthy and wholesome, and toward many other of the normal activities of life that I've indicated. It is surely rarely or never, however, that these inclinations would lead us, if simply followed, toward some appropriately limited indulgences in food and drink and so on, as virtue and the natural life require. Here we see the corrupting influence that I mentioned a few minutes ago of our upbringing in communities dominated by adult humans with very unnatural ideas about the value of food and drink and of bodily pleasure in general in our lives and about all kinds of other things of actual value. Since virtue requires acting not just in accordance with nature, but in agreement with its thoughts and intentions too, it's not virtuous ever to use our reason in producing our impulses uh, and our consequent actions only to the extent of accepting and acting on whatever inclination we happen to find ourselves with. Those inclinations are indeed a part, in part a residue from our management directly by nature itself earlier in our lives through natural instincts, and so they are to that extent healthy and natural for us to feel. But, in addition, we will certainly have some inclinations deriving from that earlier time that reflect the bad ideas introduced into our ways of feeling as we grow up through the influence on us uh, of the bad ideas of our elders. These latter inclinations may seem to us to be equally natural, but they are not. They must be eliminated or restrained. The full use of reason in crafting our adult impulses, for which the world mind bestows reason on us, involves our not forming our impulses directly through the acceptance of any inclination, whether in fact natural or not, as if simply having such an inclination gave us any reason to desire or to do anything. Rather, we only use our rational powers fully through our critical reflection reaching the conclusion that the world mind does indeed wish and intend for us to form any given impulse in favor of any objective, whether or not it is also, whether that objective, uh, whether or not that objective is also the object of any such inclination. It is those reasons that we endorse if we act not only in accord, but in agreement with the world mind. If we are virtuous, we have to be aware of that and why the world mind wants us to have these impulses, the ones that we produce, and wants us to act on them when and to the extent that it is right for us to do so. Whether or not, again, it is also part of the overall and total intentions of the world mind that we actually achieve the external objectives that we adopt in having those impulses or making those decisions as to what to try to bring about. We have these reason-generated impulses and act on them as our contribution our sole contributions to the overall fantastically beautiful and well-ordered sequence of events that constitutes the life history of the world animal of which we are crucially important parts. In fact, it often happens that it is correct to want and decide to bring something about in the outer world, to want to achieve something specific, yet we do not succeed. That means, but it only means, that the maximally good history of the world 
required something else to happen there and then than what we tried to make happen. There is no reason to think that our or our wishes being therein frustrated was itself any inherent part of what might make the world history that instead includes this other event maximally complex and well-ordered. And so, more complex and well-ordered than if our wished-for outcome had been included. Hence, if we are to live in agreement with nature, we must accept gladly this event, even if it does go against our antecedent wish and our antecedent efforts. Both our wishes and efforts and this contrary outcome are parts of the same maximally good order of world events that is not only God's and the world's good, but our own good too. Thus, if we are virtuous, we do everything that we do as a duty, for duty's sake, because it is what God, with the authority of perfected reason, prescribes us to do. Doing whatever it is, is for the cosmic best, and we accept what happens afterwards as also best, even if we cannot understand how that could be so. Yet these dutiful actions and dutiful acceptances are also for our individual good and happiness, and we do them for that reason too. So much then for a brief sketch of the outlook on and mode of life that, according to Stoic theory, it is for our own highest good to achieve and sustain consistently and without wavering over our adult lifetimes. The sketch I've given is incomplete. I have not so much as mentioned several crucially important doctrines of the Stoics and their ethical theory, though I've relied implicitly on them. Indeed, for the most part, I've avoided anything about technical Stoic theory and just tried to make sense of it in my own philosophical terms, which I think, I hope, are more accessible to you than these technical doctrines are. So, so I've left out, I've said nothing about a number of crucial doctrines, um, though I've been relying on them implicitly throughout. But even this limited sketch uh, will, I hope, suffice for my present purpose in conclusion of addressing the Stoic conception of philosophy, Stoic philosophy as itself a way of life. In what I've been describing as the actions of a natural life, I have made special mention of what we may think of as the virtues of character. Moral virtues like justice, kindness, benevolence, industriousness, and public spirit, for example, but also virtues of personal and private life, such as temperance, courage, fortitude, and so forth. Let's consider, then, how, on the Stoic theory, anyone manages to live virtuously, uh, fully virtuously, I mean, not only doing the things that justice and kindness and temperance and courage and so on call for, but doing them in the right spirit, that is, with the attitudes, especially those in relation to agreement with the world's mind's wishes for us, of virtuous persons, according to their theory. The Stoics reasonably hold that, practically speaking, one can only live that way on the basis of a full and deep grasp of the analyses and arguments of Stoic theory, and delineating these modes of behavior and these attitudes as the ones that are required of us for virtuous living. I have mostly omitted to go into these analyses and arguments, the ones that establish that there is a divine world mind, that we are essentially rational beings ourselves, that our moral psychology and the psychology of our actions is the one that I outlined for them, and so on. In other words, the very virtue of wisdom, Sophia, which in following Socrates and Socratic moral analysis, the Stoics make the comprehensive virtue of a human being, of which justice and so forth are aspects, has as its indispensable center precisely an understanding based in Stoic theorizing about the human good, 
and the natural requirements of and for human life of the fact that and of how and why some version of these traditional personal and social virtues is to be taken as our fundamental guide to life and in fact our highest good. So that is the first way that for the Stoics philosophy is a way of life. In living the life of virtue, given the Stoic account of what that is and of what attitudes to an outlook on life it requires, a Stoic is living constantly on the basis of the philosophical understanding of human nature and human life as part of the life of the whole world animal that Stoic philosophy itself works out um, and thinks it has established as the full and final truth as regards these matters. But there's also a second way that for the Stoics, philosophy is a way of life. I've just referred to knowledge of Stoic ethical theory as the basis for the way a Stoic, if they live virtuously, according to Stoic theory, lives his or her life. But ethics is only one of three parts of what, uh, of which, parts into which Chrysippus and other Stoics divided the discipline of philosophy. In addition to ethics and the theory of the virtues, there is what, in homage again to Socrates, they call dialectic, or logic and the theory of language, regarded as the essential vehicle for thought. And also what they call physics, or the philosophy of nature, including theology, since for the Stoics, God or the gods are the most fundamental of all the constituents of nature itself. I have said a certain amount about the theory of nature and what I've said about the world mind. But there is a vast deal more under that rubric, as there is also under the rubric of dialectic, about which I've said virtually nothing. In fact, the Stoic list of the human virtues, that is, of those conditions of our minds in which they become perfected and brought to their final natural fulfillment, making possible our happiness, includes as additional virtues, beyond the ones we can think of as moral or ethical virtues, this very knowledge of logic and of dialectic, plus also the, the knowledge of physical theory. That is to say, in both instances, possessing the knowledge of what the Stoic philosophy argues and establishes, as they think, to be the ultimate and final truths about both logical and dialectical matters and physical ones are themselves virtues, needed perfections of our minds and souls if we are to live fully, well, and happily. The knowledge of these philosophical disciplines constitutes two among the human virtues. Now, for Aristotle, the virtues that correspond in his system to the Stoic virtues of dialectic and physics as items of knowledge are counted as virtues of the theoretical intellect, and he places those higher in rank than the the moral or ethical and practical ones because the latter belong to non-rational feeling on the one hand and merely practical intellect on the other. But for the Stoics, these virtues do not lead us to some transcendent realm of divine thought apart from the world of nature, as they do for Aristotle. They are, in fact, these virtues of, uh, of dialectic and, um, and, and, and physical um, theory, they are, in fact, strictly and totally sub- subservient to the very same living of good daily social and political life that wisdom and the virtues of character sustain. The reason why physics and dialectic count as virtues for the Stoics is that the Stoics reasonably think that unless one possesses and is prepared to use as needed in one's daily life, the, knowledge, the full knowledge of dialectic and physics that Stoic philosophical argument and analysis have established for us, one will not in fact be able to sustain without wavering and without fail the life of full agreement with our own nature and the world mind's wishes that living virtuously requires. 
The whole of Stoic, as one could say, theoretical philosophy, if one wishes to contrast physical and dialectical logical theory with ethical and political philosophy, that's a vast, coherent, mutually supporting body of knowledge that, when integrated equally coherently and and mutually supportively with Stoic ethics, gives the total and only possible means for acting completely correctly, without fail, and even without an iota of wavering, no matter what unexpected circumstance might arise in one's life, in each and every action of one's adult life. One never knows when one might need to call upon dialectical skill or knowledge, or knowledge of detailed matters of physical theory, with their supporting arguments, in the course of one's daily life, if one is to make correct decisions and act fully correctly. So for the Stoics, these additional virtues, let's say philosophical virtues, uh, and so therefore virtues of, of theorizing, are not, in Aristotle's sense, theoretical virtues which take you outside the physical world. They belong directly and fully in it. The consequence is that philosophy becomes a way of life uh, for the Stoics, as I said, in a second way, within their unified single conception of philosophy as a way of life. Devotion to the regular practice of philosophical argument and inquiry as a means of keeping one's knowledge of physical and logical dialectical theory fresh and ready for use as it might be needed in order to think one's way through oddities or difficulties for evaluation and action in one's daily life thus becomes part of the Stoic best life, part of the Stoic highest good. Thus the Stoics make provision for the regular practice of philosophical reasoning and discussion and argument as a constituent part of the single best life for a human being. Philosophy does not merely define in detail what the best way of living is and does not merely play a crucial role as the basis for the moral virtues in making correct decisions and in steering us to a life of the kind specified, theoretical philosophizing becomes, also becomes one of the activities of daily life itself in the happy human life. Thank you.